This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, fellow esthetes, followers of words and whispers, mystics and artistes. I'm Grant Faulkner, a person who likes to let words lead me into stories and see where they take me, as does our guest today, Kaming Chang. And I'm here with my word-loving co-host, Brooke Warner. And, and Brooke, I was quite taken by a lot of Kaming's interviews that I read in preparation for our interview today because of the way she talked about following language as a way to find her story. And she spoke really beautifully about this, you know, like a poet. And I was just so curious about her process, especially as it relates to actually my own meandering kind of moody process. And, and also because we both write flash fiction, which plays a role in our longer fiction as well. So, so the subject of aesthetics is on my mind and the way our aesthetics guide our stories and even make an existential statement, I might say. And since K-Ming talks about following words to find her stories, I've been thinking of a quote by one of my favorite writers, James Salter, who said, I'm a fruiteur, someone who likes to rub words in his hand to turn them around and feel them to wonder if that really is the best word possible. And I like this because by rubbing words around, Salter is essentially, you know, kind of living and breathing the words, you know, they're real things, even even at the same time, while they're mystical and perhaps even magic, you know, they hold powers. And I felt like when we talked to Kay Ming, she had this kind of interesting, her, her words were very physical and textural, put it that way. So Brooke, I, I think people actually have a, have a lot of different reactions to the word aesthetic. So I wondered what you think of when you think of the word aesthetic. Yeah, it's such a good question because it's a, it's a word that encompasses a lot in its simplest terms. I think of it as taste. Uh, but if I go deeper into what is someone's aesthetic, I would also say style, how they express themselves. I often think of aesthetic when I go into a person's home and see their vibe, or I think about it when I think about how people dress, how they present themselves to the world. And in writing, aesthetic may have to do with sentence structure too, short staccato sentences versus long flowery sentences, or someone who uses a lot of metaphors and imagery. It's a great word because it can be applied to how we show who we are to the world. Uh, and it's through our choice of self-expression across so many different planes of experience. And how about you, Grant? What are your thoughts on the word or the idea of aesthetic? Yeah, I got really interested in when I wrote my book, The Art of brevity. And, and I became really interested in why, you know, some writers love to write these big, dense maximalist books while, while people like me are taken by a shorter, you know, more fragmentary work. So, so, so I just wondered how an aesthetic shapes how we see the world and express it. And I make the case in my book that an aesthetic is our lens upon the world. So our aesthetic actually holds an existential position, you know, similar to your analogy of an aesthetic being closely tied to style, which it is, but that style isn't just an expression. It's also a lens on the world. So, so often, 
you know, the word aesthetic is seen as focused on determining the, the beauty of an object. And, and an aesthete is seen as someone who's removed from real life, you know, immersed in arts and perhaps even decadently so. But in my book, I wanted to open up the definition of what aesthetic means and focus less on its, you know, subjective or superficial traits and more on how an aesthetic is like a framework to, to express and understand life. And, and I think of how the Greek term aesthesis, which I mentioned in my book, you know, it means sensual perception. So an aesthetic is rooted in the, in the feeling of experience. So for me, for example, an aesthetic of brevity helped me return to, you know, direct sensation because it made me more detail oriented in my writing and it made me notice the world and to notice it differently and to notice small stories that weren't insignificant just because of their size. And, and then because I had, you know, fewer words to work with, my writing had to be more powerful and, um, and evocative. So the aesthetic brevity, you know, just heightened my attention. So it's, it's more like poetry to me, I think. I love that because you're talking about finding a container for your work that's aligned with how you want to express and articulate and probably also for how you see the world and therefore what fits your tastes. Uh, and I think as readers, we have experiences of relating to or loving someone's aesthetic. We recently had Maggie Smith on the show. For me, her memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, was one of those books that I read and I was like, wow, I love this place that is her book. <laughs> mm -hmm. It would be the same for me as walking into someone's home and thinking, I love what they've done here, right? It's a style. It's a way of articulating self. And, and so we do feel that in our reading experiences. And, and then if you extend that, of course, into our writing, uh, and when we publish and put our books out into the world, we are in fact inviting readers in. We're saying like, look around, come in, see what you think. Uh, and so what's going to happen, of course, is that some readers are not going to love what you've done. <laughs> yeah. and, and some people are going to be like, oh my gosh, this is my favorite thing. I, I totally love it. And, and so because we have an aesthetic in the first place, we're not going to appeal to everyone. I think that's important. Like you don't even need to or want to appeal to everyone. It's actually better to fully lean into our own aesthetic than to not have one, you know, or to have such a bland place that people are like, okay, great, bored over here. I love your phrase. I love this place that is her book as a definition <laughs> of an aesthetic. And yeah, you're right. Aesthetic, especially when it's a strong one, you know, won't be for everyone. And I was recently talking to a friend who who read my book and she made the comment that that writing with an aesthetic of brevity is, is an unheroic way to write. And she actually meant that as a good thing, as in those writers who want to write the great American novel, you know, it's often a very heroic, muscular thing to do because, you know, it's heft is meant to make a mark, whereas tiny stories are just kind of humbled by their nature. You know, they don't cry out to be noticed or, or to tell the whole story. They're less about certainty than uncertainty, I think. And that's part of their gift um, and ambiguity and humility and acceptance of uncertainty. And, and I think, uh, yeah, in general, ambiguity is an unheralded gift of brevity. And I think it's interesting how K-Ming gets into how her style of writing can sometimes uh, be even disorienting. And society, our general society, of course, you know, likes these definite, tangible answers, you know, scientific proofs and algorithms and data. But, but I think so much of life resides in ambiguity and capturing the ambiguity of life is tied to an aesthetic. So I think an aesthetic offers, you know, just an entry point into our relationships with people and even objects and events and environments and the past and the present and the future and even the political structures in which we're all enmeshed. So an aesthetic might seem distant from a belief system or a faith, but but at the same time, an aesthetic forms the foundation for how a story or belief is expressed. So an aesthetic determines, actually kind of determines how we experience life and how we express it. Like, it, again, it's our lens into life.
Yeah, it's interesting that you connect an aesthetic to political structures. And you do that in your book, too. In the introduction of The Art of Brevity, you quoted Sadia Kuraishi Shepard, who wrote that the aesthetic of the fragment shapes the diverse histories, homelands, and literary traditions that she finds herself in. So I'm going to say that again, the aesthetic of the fragment. I, I love that so much. And she wrote... In my own writing life, the idea of the fragment and how it might suggest the fractures and dislocations of memories and border crossings is a recurring fascination. I love this idea because we're seeing the aesthetic of poetry inform memoir a lot. I'm very interested in white space on the page and just the, you know, one or two lines that someone might put onto a page in a memoir. I mentioned Maggie Smith. She does this. She's not the first person to do it well. I was actually trying to remember, and I think the first person I saw do a one-line chapter was Abigail Thomas. Uh, and I love that kind of spare sensibility, and especially when it's intermingled into non-spare narration, because it just is an experience. It takes you into this, as you said, kind of an aesthetic world. And also, it's very bold. It's a very bold writing choice in a long narrative to say, here's a single line on this chapter that I'm leaving you with, because it shows a confidence in the writer to say, like, this is what I have to say here. Uh, so it's that is an extension of a aesthetic. Uh, Abigail Thomas, who we had on the show a long while back, oh my gosh, and she's so wonderful. I just love her. You know, she talked to us about her style uh, and about following the thread of her memories. And because her memories are not linear, the way that she does her work is by definition or, or extension, I should say, nonlinear. So she's a wonderful writer to read for how she approaches form. Yeah, I, I always say that life isn't like a round, complete circle. It's shaped by fragments and shards and pinpricks. And, and in fact, Kaming, you know, relates her plots to tapestries. And I personally relate to that because I like to think of my plots as a collage of, of snapshots. And, and for me, the fragments of tiny stories, you know, perfectly capture the, the disconnections in life that I'm most fascinated by. And I want to mention that in Kaming's uh, Flash Pete's Footnotes on a Love Story, which is a story I first read by her, she uses the form of the footnote to decenter like the main story that's told in the primary textual space on the page. And hard to imagine this, this reading experience is really interesting because in the footnotes, you know, we learn about another love story as we read through a series of, you know, lenses that shift the meaning of the story and provide more layers and more different contexts and counterpoints. And, and, you know, when you think about footnotes, they're often skipped over by readers and, and even though they're designed to kind of deepen, you know, knowledge of the content, they can also be seen as extras, you know, facts that didn't earn their way into the main text of a narrative. So by design, they, they exist in the margins. And so by placing so much of the story in the footnotes, which I just thought was fascinating, uh, came in, you know, she asked where, where the center of the story is, essentially. And if, in fact, the main story is the main story, because the main story becomes a type of footnote itself, you know, it's a story that lives in in between other stories. And, and so I think of Kaming sometimes like her aesthetic invites in the question of this in-betweenness and, and, and being told in this way, the story possesses, you know, new and different boundaries and exists in a liminal state by, by definition. And that's what I find so delightful about reading her. The terrain of the story is always shifting and surprising. Yeah, I love this too, because I am delighted to be surprised by writers these days. And if you read a lot, you will continue to be surprised by what you read. And hopefully that informs your own writing. Uh, I know it does for me. So I can't wait to hear what Kang Ming has to share with us and maybe even surprise us after this short break.
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce K-Ming Chang because I first encountered uh, her writing through the very short story, Footnotes of a Love Story, which was in Best Small Fictions uh, anthology a couple of years ago. And I was completely intrigued and captivated by her writing. And, and I was lucky enough to be, be on a panel with her at the Bay Area Book Festival last year. And she, she talked about writing flash fiction. And I was just, again, uh, really, really taken with the way that she speaks about writing and her process. Uh, so just a little bit about Kaming Chang. She, Kaming is a, a Kundaman Fellow, a Lambda Literary Award winner, a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, and an O. Henry Prize winner. She's the author of the novel Bestiary, which was long listed for the Center for Fiction First Novel Prize. Her story collection, Gods of Want, won a Lambda Literary Award. And her latest novel is Organ Meats, which came out just last October. Welcome, Kaming. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to talk to you. Yeah, me too. Uh, well, Kaming, I wanted to start by talking about your aesthetic and specifically the way that language guides you to the story and then how the short, short form plays uh, with your longer stories or novels. And in one interview um, I read, um, you said, I tend to follow language and imagery, allowing the sonic quality of the sentence or the line to guide me. I also wrote many parts of both books. I think you were talking about bestiary and organ meats in uh, small self-contained sections of flash fiction. I'm really interested in unraveling seemingly small moments and planting images and motifs that can recur throughout the longer piece. So I was wondering if you could speak and tell us more about this process. Yeah, I, I love that you mentioned the Bay Area Book Festival because it was actually there that um, I saw a panel with the poet Victoria Chang, and she was quoting another poet, so it's a bit of a game of poets telephone, mm. uh, where she said, uh, I'm interested in language first, then ideas. Um, and I feel like in such a succinct way, that kind of unlocked for me um, what I've been kind of naturally doing, I think as someone who first came from a poetry writing background, that idea of language first and letting the language lead me um, and following the quality of it, the kind of sensory pleasure of language, be a guiding craft principle <laughs> more than, you know, plot or character development or sometimes even form uh, was really liberating for me to hear and also made me feel like, OK, well, if the poets are doing it, then maybe I, I, I too have permission um, to be able to follow language first and ideas. Um, yeah. And I think about writing novels and in the form of flash fiction or beginning with flash fiction as like a leaping off point, I find that oftentimes the more condensed and small the form is, the more expansive in scope and ambition um, I can aim for. And that the more space and the more room I have, the more I want to focus on these really small micro moments 
uh, or sometimes like domestic moments or these very kind of enclosed spaces. Um, so I, I find it kind of fascinating that the, sometimes it's, it's about like resisting the form or pushing up against it in some way. Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, and, and thank you. I, that same interview, we're going to kind of quote you for a second here, if you don't mind, because it's uh, they're great jumping off points. Uh, because you said, it was also very natural for me to write about the strange and absurd, which don't feel strange at all. As I'm writing them, I've been surrounded by magic and fate and ghosts my entire life. And this is really interesting to us because we recently interviewed uh, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who also talked about this idea that, you know, the magical and mysterious is not separate from her reality. And when we probed about it a bit, she was saying, you know, that she sees magical realism as a label that works to other writers of color. And I wondered if you had a take on that as well, uh, you know, similar or different. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think I always really hesitated to call myself a genre writer in some way because I felt that, again, the sense of that I needed permission or that genres are, are gatekept in some way. And so I had to kind of prove that I was a genre writer in a certain way, um, while at the same time knowing that I wasn't very interested in literary realism and that I was always in conversation with various forms of genre and speculative fiction. Uh, and I think I realized that a lot of labeling genre, not all the time. Sometimes I think it is a way of, like you said, there, there's there's a way of othering, but there's also a way of, I think, forming community by intentionally putting yourself in a literary lineage. And sometimes that comes from like claiming a genre label, but sometimes it's also a marketing tool. Um, it's a way of making someone legible on a shelf. It's a way of selling a book, but it's not necessarily something that that feels particularly useful during the actual writing process or revising process or creative process. Um, yeah, so for me, I definitely agree with that. I think a lot of times there's an almost like anthropological or ethnographic gaze on work by writers of color or um, or women writers um, where there's this idea of like, okay, well, you're th there's something inherently not creative or not transformative about the work that you're creating because it's supposed to in some way represent a community in a very straightforward or like recording way that I think does a lot of disservice to I think like the transformative act um, that an artist brings to the page or to the process. Kiming, I'm going to loop back to your your flash fiction sensibility, and and I really appreciated what you just said about building a novel through this intense focus on the moment or or microfiction, and I really relate because I don't think I'm a great plotter, and I think my plot insecurity has even kind of held me back as an author in some ways, except that it's it's made me think about plot and story differently, and sometimes I think by doing an end run around plot, which is what I call it, I find a more interesting way to tell a story. And you once said, I make fun of myself for not being able to write a plot. And sometimes I wonder if I can qualify as a prose writer if I don't think about plot very much. And I've definitely thought about the same thing and, and continue to. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about your relationship to plot. Oh, plot and I have beef. I have so much animosity and hatred in my heart <laughs> um, <laughs> for 
plot. It's, it's, it's a very um, contentious relationship. And I feel like I text a friend at least once a week about how much I despise plot. <laughs> and it's not just my own inability to write it. It's also like reading it. Sometimes I hate it. <laughs> I'm just like, why are these things happening? It's awful. Go back to the, to the prose. Like, let's just all be Clarice Lispector and, <laughs> and just read her beautiful interior monologue for 300 pages. Like I don't want things to happen anymore. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I, it's, it's really interesting. I, I think, I think maybe part of it is just, there is a part again, that kind of like unfulfilled part of me that I'm like, if I, if I explored this like alter ego self <laughs> that was like semi interested in plot, what could that unlock for me? So I think there was like a slight amount of fear and hesitance um, in exploring that part of myself, though I recently have been slightly dipping my toes. And then there's the other part of me that's like, you know what? No, I will buckle down on this statement. I hate plot. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the idea of plot to me is still really confusing. Like what exactly it is, I just find really slippery and difficult to grasp. And I've always been told that plot is different from story, that those two things are separate. And when the plot ends is not when the story ends. And that kind of dissecting of craft elements in this like very clinical way, I oftentimes it's just like so difficult or I find it kind of a hindrance in some ways to the process. Um, Cause I'm like, okay, well, if plot isn't story, then why am I thinking about plot? Because I'm interested in story. I'm interested in narrative and people tell me narrative isn't plot. <laughs> um, and so I'm, I'm always trying to think like, what is useful for me to think about right now? What is getting me to the page? What is again, kind of allowing me to follow that sensory pleasure of the language and kind of leaving aside maybe other concerns that I think might not be the right moment to address. Well, let's go back to following language as a way to tell the story. Organ meets specifically your most recent novel. You talked about having a more sensory relationship to language than an intellectual connection to language. This kind of seems all interconnected with uh, maybe your your preference for prose and following the language. Uh, and so it seems that you take a mystical approach to language because of the way that you follow it and allow it to shape what directions uh, you're excavating. You actually wrote this again, what directions you continue to excavate um, and delve. Uh, so could you tell us more about that sensory relationship and how do you follow it? Um, I mean, does it beckon you? What's the actual feeling like as you sit down to write? Yeah, I mean, I felt really deeply fearful when Organ Meats came out for the reason that I think it was um, almost like the most extreme version of my style. And I kind of pushed that aesthetic extreme and like maximalism the furthest I possibly could. And I think now looking back on that fear, that initial fear of like, oh no, I I don't know what this is. And I'm really afraid of maybe people seeing as frivolous in some way. I think now when I look back on it, I think, oh, I was so free. It was so, so, so free. Every sentence of that book was incredibly free. And so now I feel a sense of affection and almost mourning that I can't necessarily ever be that free as a writer again. <laughs> um, not that I can't, but there was like a certain... Um, yeah, just a certain like kind of liberating feeling in the way that I was like playing with the the malleable unit of the sentence. 
that I think it would be very, very difficult because I am a different person and a different writer to be able to reclaim that. And so now I'm like, okay, you're allowed to exist. I'm glad you exist. I'm very happy with that. But yeah, I guess on the idea of, of following the sensory pleasure of the language, um, I was thinking a lot about the poet Natalie Diaz came to my school when I was a student in undergrad, and she talked about the letters of the Roman alphabet, the English alphabet, um, kind of coming from the skeletons and skulls of animals. Um, and she had this like really beautiful slideshow and was talking about like the A resembling a skull. I, I don't remember if it was like an antelope skull or exactly the species, but that really left um, an impression. And I thought a lot about the kind of bodily nature of language. Um, and especially because being inspired by oral story, I'm always thinking about language as an embodied thing, something that comes through the mouth, that kind of lives in the body, that is inseparable from communities and from bodies. Um, and I think because of that, I'm always thinking of first and foremost of how the language sounds, like the texture of it, how it feels, as much as I am thinking about what, what, what does it mean literally? I think there's something about moving away from hammering down a singular meaning for something that allows all these different avenues and pathways to open up. And the more that I moved away from, okay, I have to figure out, you know, the singular meaning of the sentence and how the reader is going to interpret that, et cetera. As soon as I moved away from that, the sentences kind of became animated on their own. They became like these lively beasts um, that meant multiple things and were always running away from me. And the language felt a bit unruly and like difficult to control. And I find that being in that space of like almost it, like being in a pen of like animals overrunning me <laughs> is a really delightful and really fun feeling. And it always shows me where to go in the story as well. It always brings me to a place of surprise with the characters or with the narrative. I love listening to you talk about language. It's so fascinating. And I think this question might be a little related to what you just said about the language. Like, I forget the exact words, but kind of taking you over or running around. Um, and also with your, your talk about um, hating plot. And, and I found it interesting how you embraced uh, disorienting the reader as well in Organ Meets. And, you know, if you've ever taken a, a writing workshop, it, it seems like so many comments are about anchoring the reader and providing context and a sense of grounding. But I actually like when I'm decentered or destabilized by prose. So so I'm, I'm curious, why did disorientation serve you in, in Organ Meets? Or did you intentionally kind of think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I didn't intentionally think about that, but I think being in that other mode, as I was saying, of kind of letting myself go in a certain way, releasing myself from a certain, like maybe watchful self-policing eye uh, resulted um, in, in, in disorienting myself or not thinking particularly about like orienting or anchoring or grounding the reader. Um, and then I think in the editorial process, I more had to figure out, like, what are the signposts going to be throughout this book? What are the threads going to be throughout this book? And I find that I'm, like, very, very literal. And I don't know if it's because I read The Phantom Tollbooth as a kid and was just really obsessed with puns and with, again, this, like, materiality of language or a certain kind of playfulness with language. But every single one of my books has a very, very, very literal anchor 
Um, for example, in Bestiary, there's the tail, the tiger tail. That is also like the tail of the book. And then in Organ Meats, there's a literal thread. And people are always talking about like, what is the thread? You know, what is the guiding thread of, the, of this book, this narrative? Um, and I was like, well, then I'm going to write about a literal thread. And then we can just follow that object. <laughs> so I, I, I probably, if somebody was like anchor the reader, I would probably write a literal actual anchor into the story <laughs> <laughs> or like staple their feet to the ground or something very, that like, I, I don't know, for some reason that's, I, I head into this kind of childish, again, maximalist cluttered place um, in terms of, of finding that sense of, of balance between like disorientation and then having something for the reader to hold on to. Maybe it's a bit like amusement park. It's like greeting someone at the front of an amusement park. Like <laughs> here's your giant, surreal, large teddy bear. Now, you know, walk through this, this kind of fun house mirror land of, of objects mm. um, is maybe how I think about it. I, I think there's also something to be said about, um, I don't know, like catering to the expectations of the reader when we oftentimes say like, you know, anchor the reader or orient the reader in a certain way. And I don't necessarily think that's bad. We're ultimately all catering to a reader all the time. Um, but I think there's this expectation. I often get feedback of like, oh, you know, what are what am I learning from this? What am I taking away from this? What am I extracting from this narrative? Um, and sometimes I, I feel really exhausted by that idea. And I'm like, I, I, I love books where I can't really take anything away from it. Or I'm not really sure what I extracted or what, my, what I learned from it, quote unquote, um, because it's not an object or like a thing to be studied. Um, it's something that I was able to experience or that just kind of flipped a switch in myself and brought me to this other mode of being or other state of being that I really loved. And I love those reading experiences so much that I think subconsciously I then try to think about that as I'm writing or give myself the permission to not necessarily be like, oh, and here's your takeaway um, from reading this story, um, which is sometimes difficult to do. And sometimes I do want there to be a takeaway. So it, it, it depends on the story. Well, Kaming, you may have noticed, but we're very intrigued by your aesthetic. And Grant and I were discussing whether an aesthetic is an ex uh, existential position on life. And so I'm curious about your feelings about that because you are so aesthetically inclined. And I have to say, I mean, I love what you're talking about there with the fun house and the literalism. I mean, I, I think there's a real playfulness and a curiosity that's sort of inherent. Yeah, I think I think an aesthetic is is a kind of existential existential position. And I think it also is inseparable from everything else, um, from content and from form and also thematically what I'm interested in. I feel like it's all of one world. <laughs> and I think, I think part of my aesthetic um, or like the maximalism, the clutteredness of it, the wanting to, kind of push a sentence to its furthest point. Part of it is like, I think I grew up with a lot of like hoarders and maximalists in my life. And so I think that's naturally just seeped into uh, my writing. But I, I also think a lot about the oral storytelling form um, and ways that I can kind of emulate that form. Um, and text is so rigid and authoritative. There's something about it that always speaks to like, okay, this is a singular narrative, or this is a canonical version of the story, or there's something very, very certain about it. And I feel like oral storytelling or gossiping, having conversations, 
um, spreading rumors is like the opposite of that is all forms of like hearsay. <laughs> and I, I, I'm always thinking about like, what is a way of writing that can bring in the sense of like uncertainty or doubt or poorness or conversational playfulness um, of a spoken form or an oral form and blend it in with this really inherently authoritative, rigid form and I think wanting to combine and blend both of those elements um, results oftentimes in just like more words, <laughs> an explosion of words. That's so interesting because in closing, K-Ming, you know, I'd, I'd read in several interviews where you refer to the stories you heard while growing up. And it sounds like you come from a, a storytelling family. So I was going to ask you how, how that does influence you. But it's interesting what you just said about it being a, um, you know, a combination of I guess your interest in minimalism, but but the maximalism that oral storytelling brings to things. I had never thought of oral storytelling that way, to tell you the truth. So that's interesting. Tell me a little about your, your storytelling heritage, since you mentioned that before. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like we're often told that speaking is different from writing and that writing is this intellectual interior pursuit of like, you know, being in a closed silent room and laboring over the sentence and being, you know, incredibly intentional and thoughtful with every word. And I, I do believe that. And I do feel like that is mostly my process is sitting alone, <laughs> sitting alone in that room. Well, maybe not sitting alone. I do enjoy the ambient sounds of conversation, but I don't know. There's something like strange about dismissing speaking or seeing speaking as like this really inherently shallow, um, non-intellectual, not interior pursuit. And I was like, I feel like maybe part of that is just like historical misogyny of like, you know, the word gossip <laughs> mm. or, or spreading rumors or this idea that like, you know, the oral form is, is, is this, it's like beneath intellectual pursuit um, or isn't a craft in a certain way. Whereas I always feel like storytelling this in the spoken form, the oral form, it is a craft and it's a craft I'm equally invested in, the same as writing. And again, it's it's kind of wanting to to be informed by my love of of, of both forms. Um, and also in some ways like paying tribute to that as a form of of, of of storytelling heritage as a form of inheritance is like oh yeah i've what i've inherited more than anything is a lot of talk <laughs> a whole lot of talk um but this talk it, it's they're the building blocks of me they they kind of are i always like joke i'm like oh you know we, we always say like we are what we eat but also i think we are the stories that we're told and i i still really believe in that deeply and I also feel like being bound to such a kind of prolific storytelling lineage of women and wanting to pay tribute to that and wanting to honor that and also like argue with it and interact with it and play with it in this dynamic way where I'm constantly having some form of like conversation with that lineage is something that I think a lot about bringing into the writing as well. And I think that oftentimes translates as like a very polyphonic voice or a, a chorus or a choir of some kind or a lot of just like people saying things to each other or people talking to each other I think a lot about like 
the first sentence of The Woman Warrior by Maxine Honkinson, which is my favorite first sentence of all, of all time. And I'm always telling students and telling people, I'm like, it's, it's, the, best, it's the best first sentence of a book ever, um, which is, you must not tell anyone, my mother said, what I'm about to tell you. Um, and I feel like I could write for the rest of my life with that first sentence. Um, and that in some ways, there's kind of an ars poetica encapsulated within it as well. There's like a why I write embedded into that sentence as well. Um, that really resonates with me. I love that. You could write a very long essay on that first sentence, I think. <laughs> I could. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Kaming. This was a real treat. Yeah, we're so grateful. Thanks, Kaming. Thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Brooke, this week's book trend is another, uh uh-oh, unfortunately depressing one. And in keeping with something you said in last week's trend, which is that all of our trends could be the demise of the the old guard or the impacts of AI, uh, the writer, literally the oldest writing magazine in the United States has gone under. And it's been published since 1887, which is just so amazing to think about because I wouldn't have thought there would be a significant readership for writing tips back then. That's partly because, you know, our society wasn't that literate back then. It's sad for me personally because I remember buying The Writer at a newsstand when I was a teen and it was one of the few writing resources available to me. So, you know, it obviously, you know, really shaped me. I turned to it a lot. Yeah. And it's a similar story to what we're hearing about so much. I mean, we've been covering these trends. Um, Writer's Digest went on the sales block a few years ago after its publisher, FNW Media, decided to sell it. And then amazingly, it only fetched $200,000, which is an mm-hmm. indicator perhaps of the challenging potential of this business. Writer's Digest is another long-term writing magazine, of course, but it's a big brand. And so you'd think that it would have brought more. The writer has been bought and sold a couple times, actually. Uh, and in fact, most print magazines still operating today have changed hands at least once in the past decade. The story behind the writer, I have to say, though, Grant, sounds very odd, and I won't get into the details of it, but the company that most recently acquired them, Bebop TV, <laughs> even you can hear it in its name, didn't quite have the visionary alignment for what the magazine could be. Uh, and in fact, if you visit the website even now, you'll find a live broadcast of something totally unrelated to writing with a notification that the publication is on hiatus. Strange. Uh, The latest issue of The Writer has a cover date of September 2023. Yeah. Beyond the very odd vision of Bebop TV, it's it's the usual story, you know, uh, when it comes to a magazine, it's like shrinking advertising revenue, decreasing subscriptions. And it's the latter that interests me because I think subscriptions to writing guidance, you know, it's, it's shifted to places like Substack, you know, the creator economy and, and, and Substack newsletters are definitely thriving right now. And I think magazines like The Writer just failed to adapt to this new world, which is strange because this new world is, is also an old world. You know, it's been around for 25 years or more. And you'd think an established magazine could take advantage of their brand and new tools to thrive. But that's, you know, rarely the case as we, as we experience it. And if you think about it, the person with the newsletter you know who reaches a you know has a loyal niche audience who actually trusts them 
um, and hopefully pays them. You know, that's that's essentially our new writing magazine. We're just finding our, our writing guidance in different places. And even like Right Minded, we're, we're part of that. And I want to mention that Jane Friedman wrote about this in, in her um, bi-monthly um, newsletter, The Hot Sheet. And she quoted media analyst Brian Morrissey, who wrote, You could ar- argue that what's happening now is just the final phase of a decline set in motion with the advent of the commercial internet. Maybe it was just a matter of time of when, not if. What will emerge the day after will be a different industry, leaner and diminished, often serving as a front operation to other businesses. So more legacy brands will be sent off to the SEO glue factory, as he puts it. <laughs> and the middle of the market will be eviscerated. The brands that remain will be more tightly focused in, in good and bad ways and often operate thanks to uh, subsidies from related business lines. Right. I mean, he's right. I I agree with that sentiment. It's important to think about this, not uh, just in terms of a single writing magazine, but the death of print and, uh, you know, journalism in general, which has implications for books, of course. Uh, Industry vet Kathleen Schmidt, who we've turned to before, who has a great Substack newsletter that we both follow, said last week, also in Jane Friedman's hot sheet, that the loss of big media outlets makes it harder to publicize a book and harder to get books sold into retailers. I'm sure that's true, um, but I think it's also always been true for as long as I've been in book publishing. I remember 15 plus years ago when I was at Seal and we had an author who was on the Today Show and it was a really big deal. But I also remember the head of marketing being like, this is not as big of a deal as you guys might think because the appearance is not necessarily going to make this book a bestseller and she was right. Uh, It only translated into a few hundred sales. So you can get incredible coverage even in major media and that doesn't necessarily translate into book sales. So, you know, in a lot of ways, I think the things that are going on today that are different and exciting for books are things like Oprah and Reese Witherspoon and Jenna Bush, you know, who are decidedly selling books with their uh, book clubs, Instagram, book talk. And so the old world is just shifting on its access. And of course, there is this demise of the traditional old guards, which is a death knell in that space, but it opens up other opportunities. Yeah, I think so. That said, I'm going to miss the writer. I was honored to write several articles for it over the years, and I really liked its most recent editor, TJ Murphy. I know there's plenty of content out there, though, and more ways to engage with writing conversations and resources, including our very own Right Minded, which will appear in your podcast feeds every week of the year. So please keep listening. Please keep inviting your friends to listen with you. We want to create a big world of writers and stories. So thank you for all of your support. See you next week.